0: Well, good morning. It's been a good time to worship already. And, of course, this is a significant day, and God has a habit of wanting to speak to his people on significant days. And I would invite you to turn to a very important passage of Scripture, and that is 1 Peter chapter 2. So I would encourage you, while this is on the screen, um, turn to it. You can kind of look at the context, and also we'll refer back to phrases within this very important scripture. First Peter chapter two. This is a day when we think a lot about America. And there are two names that are sort of shining stars in the founding and the fortunes and forging of the American experience. And those names are John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Both of them were integrally involved in In declaring independence and in the struggle for it to become a reality is an American experience. And then their lives were heavily invested once America became a fledgling nation. And so John Adams was the vice president under the first president of our country, George Washington. After Washington died, John Adams became our second United States president Thomas Jefferson was actually the drafter of the Declaration of Independence. He was our first Secretary of State. He was the second vice president under John Adams, and he became the third president of the United States. These men were lifelong friends. And toward the end of their lives, Adams wrote. Thomas Jefferson, and he said, my friend, you and I have lived in serious times. And indeed, they had. And in response, they had lived serious lives. There's an interesting poetic side note, I think, in terms of irony To the careers of these two friends, and that is that they died on the very same day and that day for these who were architects of independence in America was the 4th of July, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Now, fast forward with me two centuries and today is September 11, 2011, the year of our Lord. And this is, of course, the 10th anniversary of a day that is seared into the American consciousness to the point that we simply and starkly refer to it as 9 11. And nobody has to explain. What the date is when we use that term on that day, we well remember that a coordinated and brutal terrorist attack occurred and two planes were flown into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center and one was flown into the Pentagon and but for an act of heroism, one would have been flown into the White House and thousands died and exploded. Forever, Were a number of myths that had been part of our psyches shattered, for example, was the myth that America is an impenetrable fortress. Our fortress had been invaded and seriously so shattered was the myth that technology gift that it is can save us. Technology can kill us. And shattered was the myth that an evolving, enlightened humankind can solve all our problems and create a better world. That had been the opinion when the 20th century had dawned uh, we had seen much progress technologically and educationally and socially, and it was really felt in the writings of the day that in the 20th century, a new day would dawn and man's problems would disappear. And reflect for a moment on the 20th century, which is now recently passed Two world wars, global depression, suffering, conflict and evil in exponential Proportions, and then the new millennium dawned, and into the very early years of the 21st century, 9/11 occurred. Those myths are still around and held by some people, but 9/11 forever has exposed their folly. There is a line, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, between good and evil. And the line of good and evil runs straight through the human heart. You see, my friends. Like Adams and Jefferson, you and I. Are living in serious times. And as Scott asked a moment ago. Where is God? When the towers of self. Effort come crashing down and Scott gave the most wonderful of answers. But indeed, where is God? When disaster occurs, well, he's the same place that he was when the first human tower fell. Do you remember that experience? It's recorded in the 11th chapter of Genesis, and it is the story of of man building The first tower that we felt reached almost to the heavens. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, God had kicked us out of the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis chapter 11, we returned the favor. And we erected our own Garden of Eden. And we displaced God as the ruling center of our lives. And then the Tower of Babel. Came crashing down. And out of the dust and the ashes, the rubble and the ruin, God came calling, as he always does. And as God always works counterintuitively to our ways, he he called a 75-year-old childless man to be the father of a new society. It would be a redeemed society that is forged not out of our self-effort, but out of the forgiveness and the grace of God. And the Bible goes on to tell us that God has a marvelous plan here that through his graced, redeemed society, he intends to bless them. And why is he going to bless them? That through them he may bless his world. And then when the time was just right, God sent forth his son, our savior, Jesus, the chief cornerstone of the new redeemed society. These people whom he calls his very own prized possession, whom he blesses that through them he may bless our broken world. Serious times call for serious disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple to Jesus in our post 9-11 world? Well, it's going to look something like the important scripture that we have before us. First Peter chapter two, beginning with verse four. As you come to him, the living stone. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone indeed is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. Live such lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, what does discipleship to Jesus look like in a post 9-11 world? Well, it looks like the fact that God has called through Jesus to himself a people. And he has called us to be loved by him and to live his mission in our world. He has called us to be loved by him and to live his mission. In our world and the word called is an operative word, you know, there are are at least three motivations from which we can live our lives. Uh, There is the motivation that appears to be no motivation, and that's the motivation of aimlessness. I live my life like a stick of driftwood tossed into the sea of circumstances, and I am just drifted along by the current Now, the result of a life of aimlessness, of course, is a wasted life. And then there is also the motivation of drivenness, which goes to the complete other extreme. This says that I am the God of my life. I will seize my life and bust my insides to grab the brass ring of the goals that I have established for myself. Often underlying this is a an intense desire to gain the approval of some authority figure who never gave me his blessing. Now, often the result of a driven life, first of all, is a life wasted by climbing the wrong ladder, a ladder that leans against the wrong wall. But also it often leads to burnout or to blow up or to break down. And then there is the other alternative, and that is to live from the motivation of call. Now, that implies there is a caller. And it says that I view my life as a gift from the creator. And he has summoned me. He has called me to a life of significance and purpose, lived on a a higher plane that transcends My own limitations. I have been called by God, and that is the consuming passion of my life to live out that call. Now, according to this passage, which reflects the message, the the, uh, theme of scripture that is so unified to what am I called by my creator? Well, first of all, I am called to a relationship. I am called to a relationship with the caller himself. I am greatly loved by God. And through Jesus, he calls me into this special walk with him. Do you see the phrases that are used in this passage? We are chosen by God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to him. This is the language of love. It says that you have been set apart. That's what the word sanctified means. And primarily you are set apart for a special purpose to a special God. And this God loves you with an everlasting love. In Jesus, you can come to affirm one of my favorite verses in the Bible. First, John three, one. Oh, what love the father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. So here I was, all feeding at the pigsty of the self-focused life. And God pursued me. And he summoned me and called out to me. And through the tugging of his spirit, I, I came to myself And even as I was in the process of forming the words of repentance and faith upon my lips, he was already down the road and he was throwing his arms around me and he was saying, this, my son, was lost, but he has come home again. And in Christ, he puts the the ring of family identity upon your finger. He wraps the robes of his royalty around your shoulders and he puts the sandals of security upon your feet. And he says, let's have a party. My child has come home. We are called by God in Christ to be loved by him and to live in an intimate love relationship with him as the consuming passion of our lives. Now, in the same movement, the God who loves us and calls us to live our lives in the context of his love calls us to join him in his mission in our world. You see, for a Christ follower, the call to salvation and the call to mission are one and the same call. Like the Blues Brothers, you are on a mission from God. Now, what does that look like right here, right now, in your world, your corner of his broken world? That's the question that we as Christ followers will struggle with to the day we meet Jesus face to face. Well, let's try to take a stab at it based on how God unfolds his mission in the Bible. And I'm going to suggest that each of us who is a Christ follower finds himself called into two arenas. So can you hang with me a little bit as we try to unpack this in these post 9-11 times when the world badly needs saints who will live In the context of a love relationship with God and omission with him in our world. First of all. You and I as Christ followers are called to a mission in the marketplace. Where we join God in doing meaningful service and work for his namesake to reflect and extend his glory. That begins in the workplace for most of us. Back in 2000, Marilyn and my worlds were rocked when she discovered the week following Mother's Day that she had cancer. It was a very aggressive, fast-growing form of cancer. And what followed in the next year were two surgeries, six months of chemotherapy, and 34 radiation treatments. And here's one of the things we discovered. We talked about how we found God faithful in the midst of that. But another thing we discovered with great appreciation is that there are many people in the medical profession. Who are devoted to their vocation. And it reminded us that the word vocation etymologically literally means call. Isn't that an interesting we call, we view our work in terms of its etymology, as a calling. Now, for most of us, we serve in marketplace arenas where it is very difficult to imagine that what we are doing saves lives. But now consider what it means to follow Christ. Into the workplace. Now, if if Jesus doesn't go to the workplace with us, then evidently he's not a part of, of a, a large portion of our lives. So that just simply does not make sense. God must be at work in your workplace. And he is inviting you to join him there. Now, perhaps helpful here is to look at Colossians chapter three, which is a wonderful little letter. My uh, granddaughter, Grace on Grace He put on her, Grace put on her uh, Facebook, if you want to know how to follow Jesus, read Colossians. And I think she had some wise advice there for a 16 year old or for anybody. And Colossians tells us this in chapter three verse 17, "In everything whatsoever you do, do it all A,LL. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. And so there is a principle for me to carry into the workplace as I join God in his mission. And that is that in everything I do, I am to be in character with Christ's character. That's what it means to do it all in his name. I am to represent Christ in how I do my job, whatever my job is. That I do it well as unto the Lord. And in my relationship to my workplace associates, and the way I deal with my clients and customers. Now I read on in Colossians 3, about six more verses, and in chapter 23, it says Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord, for it is the Lord Christ you serve. In other words, As I go to the workplace, I am working for God. He is my ultimate employer. And what I do there, I do for his glory. Now, that brings meaning to my work. And, you know, the workplace is a great place to live out your faith because you have ample opportunity to be in a sustained relationship to the same people. Day after day, you go to that job and you see the same people. And in the workplace, like few other places, except maybe driving in traffic, you find ample opportunity to show what it means to be a Christ follower and how it is in contrast to this world system. There's plenty of opportunity to forgive and have to ask for forgiveness. There's ample opportunity to struggle with the difficulties of relationships. And there's plenty of opportunity to live according to Christian principles and morals and with integrity. And you see, the light of the gospel of Jesus can shine brightly in the darkness of secularity. So as I'm called to be loved by God and keep that in mind, when things go unfairly with you in the workplace, when somebody irritates you, you are loved by God and you are free to live his mission there. Now, the marketplace actually refers to far more than the workplace. It, it refers to any life arena where you are in ongoing relationship with people who are far from God and whom he is pursuing with his resolute love. So your marketplace may include your family. Are there people who are far from God there? He pursues them resolutely. And he invites you to join him. Your marketplace certainly includes your neighborhood. It includes the places you learn and recreate. In those places, you're invited to join God in ongoing relationships to live out his mission. Now, there are two things you're going to need if you are serious about following Christ In the marketplace, first of all, and these are absolutely critical. First of all, you must live in a transforming friendship with Jesus. You have to make the consuming passion of your life, cultivating a love relationship with Christ, apart from a a fresh Walk with Jesus, you are not going to be empowered to carry Christ into the dark places of this world where we live and move and have our being. But we do know we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So how do I cultivate a love relationship with Jesus? I daily surrender to him. Daily, I fix my focus. Upon him, that is my choice. I cannot choose a lot of my circumstances, but I can choose where I place my focus. Each day I approach a portion of the scripture as a conversation with God, a meeting with him where he speaks into my life, because as a matter of fact, that is exactly what he is doing in his word. I live out of the overflow of the cultivation of a love relationship with Christ. Now, the second thing you need, I don't have to say much on because Jeff and uh, Becky did it so well already. You need to immerse your life in a small group of faithful friends. And just as Jeff and Becky said, Jesus immersed his original 12 disciples in a small group. When the early church was formed, it was formed around small groups. And so at Meadowbrook, we wisely have understood from day one that small groups are who we are. And to be a Christ follower at Meadowbrook is to seek out and commit to a share group of faithful friends. Now, the second place, the second arena where we live God's mission Out of the overflow of his love for us. Is through sustained acts of compassion. Because compassion is the language of Jesus. And I begin to open up my heart to God. And ask him, God, is there a place where your work in me intersects? With your work in my world. Is there a place where I can, in a sustained and focused way, do my loving as I fulfill the great commandment to love you with all my heart and soul and my neighbor as myself? I begin to ask questions like, uh, where did God show his compassion to me? What are the life experiences that I have that tend to to form a pattern of God's fingerprints upon my life? What are my own gifts and temperament and and passions to serve God? Where have I known pain in my life, pain that caused me to to cry out to God and got my attention? What are some of the hurts and hang ups and habits in my world That may serve as doors of opportunity to live out the gospel of Jesus. Now you know, we live in a society, you know, I grew up in Texas and it's as I've kiddingly said in the day when I grew up in Texas back, you know, a long time ago. There were more Baptists than people in my hometown. (laughs) I mean, the really, truly courageous person didn't go to church, you know, in that culture. Those days are. Far, far behind us. We are back to the mission field, just like the first century world was. And yet it blossomed there. And you know, we live in a world now where people are indifferent to the message. They are skeptical of the message. And some are downright antagonistic to their misconception and caricature of what Christianity really is. So how? Do we carry the gospel to an indifferent, skeptical, and antagonistic culture? We kneel and we serve. Compassion, when sustained, can get underneath the most indifferent, skeptical, or an antagonistic heart. And 9-11 proves that. In the days following the 9-11 disaster... Christians from all across this country flock to Manhattan to kneel and serve because that's what Christians do. Their hearts respond to need like Jesus responds. And among those who went to uh, 9-11 was a group of, of students and adults who took off an extended period of time at their own expense, traveled to Manhattan with one purpose in mind, and their purpose was that they were going to clean apartments In the area that was surrounding the Twin Towers, because they had heard that these were the people who watched the bodies fall from the building. These were the people whose apartments were were ruined by all of the debris that resulted from the the explosions and the melting of the buildings blown through their windows and into their apartments were briefcases, cell phones. And all kinds of other matter. And their apartments were uninhabitable. And they were on long waiting lists to pay thousands of dollars to have their apartments cleaned so they could move in again. And this group of Christ followers traveled to Manhattan to clean those apartments for free. And they worked from dusk to dawn on their hands and knees cleaning those residences. And after a few days passed, when they showed up day after day after day, New Yorkers began to ask them three questions. You know what the three questions were? Number one. Where are you from? Well, we're from the Carolinas. Well, why are you here? What are you you doing? Well, we're cleaning apartments for people who have been displaced by the collapse of the Twin Towers. And, of course, the third question. Why? Well, we are followers of Jesus. And I serve him by serving you because that's what he came to do. Sustained compassion. The smell of cleaning fluid on our clothes and dirty hands and, and skin up knees and hearts on the outside of us. Is the language, the ultimate apologetic, if you will, to our post 9-11 world. So what is your marketplace to which God is sending you in ongoing relationships with people he resolutely pursues where you can join him? Where is he calling you to kneel and serve ideally best? In sustained relationships, it's great to go off somewhere and serve, but it is even greater to be called to a focused ministry of concern where every day I can show up and I can serve in Jesus name and to be ready to share that purpose. You know, one of my favorite all time favorite movies is Mrs. Miniver. Now, that's a rather unpromising title. But he won the Academy Award. And Mrs. Miniver is the story of how a a small English village sacrificed during the Second World War. Of course, the Second World War was fought at England's front door. So never did they have the illusion that we had pre-911, that they were an impenetrable fortress. In fact, week after week after week, the German Luftwaffe engaged in in aerial strikes against England. And from London on outward, the edifices of England were being decimated by these weekly bombing raids. And the small village of the movie Mrs. Miniver served the effort, first of all, by sending some of their best and their brightest to the front lines. And then as the movie unfolds, we watch as the villagers display heroism as the front lines come to them. And as the movie moves toward climax, there is one of the more brutal and devastating aerial raids and A number of the villagers who we've come to care about lose their lives. And the final scene in that movie occurs in the village church. And the worshipers from the village gather together and and they look up and they see the sky because the roof has been blown off the church building. And the pastor stands on a platform that is sagging. And being propped up by scaffolding. And many of the worshippers are sitting there bandaged up. And there are spaces between the worshippers for those who have died or who are at the front lines. And the pastor opens his Bible and he reads from the refuge Psalms. Just as we had many read following 9-11. Now this was 1942 when the movie came out. The war was very much... In doubt, the outcome for England, many of those who flocked to the movies to first see this movie that I saw on DVD were actually living the horrors that were on the screen there. And that bombed out church in that tiny village became a national symbol of hope. Actually, Winston Churchill watched that movie and some of his speeches contained lines from Mrs. Miniver. In London, it was St. Paul's Cathedral with its magnificent dome that inevitably shows up in photos of that period in time. It was in one of the neighborhoods that, that was most decimated by the bombings and yet miraculously, some would say because God's hand was on them, the dome stood as a tower of hope in a world torn apart. And in First Peter chapter two, we have painted once again a picture of the of the church that is the hope of our broken world. It is found in verses four and five. It says that the cornerstone of that church is Jesus the Christ. And those who are loved by God and who follow Christ on mission are living stones. That compose the church that rises up and prays to God. Not only when we worship on the Lord's day, the day of the resurrection, the ultimate hope, but as we have gathered, we scatter now to live his mission, to bear witness to our world in the marketplace and through sustained acts of compassion. So, Christ follower, we are living in serious times. We are called a serious discipleship. Are you at your post? Are you at your kingdom outpost? For we are on a mission from God. So as Pastor Scott always asks us now, will you? Will you first of all surrender to Christ and follow his call? Because the call to salvation and the call to mission are one and the same call. Will you choose to live as one who is loved by God? If you can swim in the ocean of God's love for you, you have the sustainable power to live His mission in the world. Will you? Seek the support of a share group of faithful friends. Check out the booth today and uh, consider signing up for your plausibility structure that will remind you that Christianity is real and you're not crazy for living counterculturally. And finally, will you commit to discover your calling to serve your world? The tear off is an opportunity to answer specifically your yes to God's call. Let's pray. Father, we have worshipped. We have experienced your presence. We have heard your call from your word. And now you call us to our response. We've not gathered today to have a nice, little, pleasant devotional exercise. We've gathered in your presence to bring praise to you and to offer our lives as living sacrifice. We want to be the living stones built upon the chief cornerstone, living in the reality of your love and embracing your mission. Father, you know each of our needs, each of our challenges, and each of our call. Speak into our lives. Holy Spirit of God, remove the barriers that indeed we may say from the heart, Yes, yes, Lord, I am ready to be a bridge, touching heaven, changing my world. In Jesus' name, amen.